0: Hello!
1: The winner is.
0: Oh, well, sorry I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in Cinema Land. I Oscar the Academy Award.
2: Hello! And welcome back to the Snub Club. The podcast where we talk about the movie that has the most Oscar noms in no wins whatsoever. This week we are at the 17th Academy Awards, but who is here with me at the 17th Academy Awards? 17th, not seven. Uh
1: well, I'm not here at the Academy Awards because I wasn't born yet. Time trouble. But I'm Sarah.
0: <laughs> I am spiritually at all places. At all times. I am Caleb.
2: And I'm still Danny Vincent. So, let's get right into it. The 17 Academy Awards, there were two films nominated for 10 Oscars. One of them was Going My Way, which was nominated for seven. 10 Oscars, as I said, and won seven of them. It won Best Picture, Best Director for Liam McCary, Best Actor for Bing Crosby, Best Supporting Actor for Barry Fitzgerald, Best Adapted Screenplay. Best Original Story, which is, I think, an interesting list <laughs> to win adapted screenplay and original story, so I have no idea what these awards mean. Um, and then it also won Best Original Song for Swinging on a Star. Then Wilson was also nominated for 10 Oscars and won five. Best Original Screenplay, Best Sound Recording, Best Art Direction for a Color Film, Best cinematographer, Cinematography for a Color Film, and Best Film Editing. Then there was a film, that had nine nominations, called "Since You Went Away." It won one of these, which was best scoring in a for a dramatic or comedy picture, and with seven nominations, uh, but a few wins was "Gaslight," which, as I said, again seven nominations and won three of them.
0: Um, didn't "Gaslight" just win two?
2: No, it, it, it definitely won three. Uh, it won. Yeah,
1: hard- I, I. It definitely won three.
2: Yeah. It won Best Actress for Ingrid Gert Bergman and Best Art Direction, Black and White. Uh, I can't find the third one it won, but I definitely know it won three Oscars. Yeah,
1: because I definitely remember it being three.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, there was another film that had seven nominations and no wins, and it was Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. Now, Sarah, what did Double Indemnity nominated for and lose for
1: yeah so uh double indemnity was nominated for best picture and lost to going my way uh best director for billy wilder who lost to leo McCarey for going my way um as a director uh, wilder was no- uh, nominated five more times and he won two uh plus a memorial award and plus one for best picture Um, Best Actress for Barbara Stanwyck, uh, who lost to Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight. Um, Stanwyck was nominated three more times and won one honorary award. Best Adaptive Screenplay for Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, um, who lost to Frank Butler and Frank Cavett for Going My Way. Uh, Wilder was nominated eight more times for writing and won three. Um, And Chandler was also nominated for The Blue Dahlia. Um, He's also most famous for being the creator uh, for being a novelist and the creator of Philip Marlowe, who was famously played by Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep. Uh, best Cinematography Black and White for John F. Seitz, uh, who lost to Joseph Lachelle for Laura. Um, and he was nominated six more times and was a frequent collaborator with Wilder. Uh, best Music Scoring of Did a you Dramatic. He never won.
2: Bummer. Uh, Good guy. <laughs> Seven nominations, <laughs> no wins, just like Evelyn Indemnity. Mm
1: hmm. <laughs> Uh, Best Music Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture for Miklos Rosa, uh, who lost to Max Steiner since he went away. Um, And he was nominated 13 more times and won three. And Best Sound Recording for Lauren Ryder, who lost to Edmund H. Hansen or Wilson. And he was nominated 11 more times for Sound and Effects and won five.
2: All right. Uh, And Mr. 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 Kleb, do you have any historic context?
0: I do. So just an overview of what was going on in 1944 and early 1945. Um, World War II was beginning to turn in the Allies' favor. In 1944, you had the Soviets continuing to make their advancements into Germany. The Polish resistance uh, rose up and started... Um, pushing the Germans out of Poland, and of course, you had D-Day, which um, was kind of the biggest foothold in Europe for the um, for the Allies. They even ended up taking uh, Rome that year as well. Uh, within a couple months um, of the ceremony in 1945, uh, victory in Japan would also be secured, and World War II would come to an end. Um, however, Our film today doesn't really talk about World War II, so instead I'm going to talk about film noir because we haven't really touched on that. Um, Film noir was a film movement that took place in the 40s and 50s. It kind of grew out of German expressionism, both American filmmakers taking influence from German filmmakers and also German filmmakers coming over from Germany um, uh, at the beginning of World War II. Um, And there are a lot of big... Uh, films around this time that were labeled film noir although um, at the time they were just labeled melodrama film noir wasn't accepted as a kind of label until the 70s although it was first uh, coined by the French critic Nino Frank in 1946 Um, like I said lots of films around this time could be labeled as one we have definitely watched some films that have some Noir influences like Dead End. Um and Casablanca, which was uh came out a few years before this, is also pretty heavily um
2: never seen it influential.
0: Oh, it's really good. Saw it in theaters recently. Um but double indemnity, while not the first, while not the best, is definitely one that captures a lot of the tropes of film noir. All right,
2: before we talk about double indemnity. You got to talk about the ceremony. where the, I think there's only two real things to note here. One is that this was the first time the entire show was broadcast nationally over the radio. Bob Hope did it. Uh, and then there were film clips that were broadcast over the radio that were then to, uh, presumably described for the audience. Uh, however, this only lasted for three years because in 1948, which I'm sure when we get to pop in historic context, the paramount antitrust decrees uh, happened. Uh, And because of that, it was no longer allowed to be broadcast over a radio that belonged to the studios. Um, So there's a nice little three-year stint of the Oscars being broadcast, four years, over the radio. And then that begins here. Uh, The other thing I think is definitely worth mentioning, has nothing to do with our movie, but going my way. You know how I said it has uh, 10 nominations? Uh, Well, two of those nominations were for the same performance. This is the only time in history a performance was nominated... Barry uh, Fitzgerald was nominated for Supporting Actor and Lead Actor for Going My Way because people could not decide where he landed. Nowadays, that will be determined by which side gets more votes. Most famously recently, last year, when Lakeith Stanfield got nominated for Supporting Actor because... Presumably, people were voting Daniel Kaluuya in Best Actor for D- Judas and the Black Messiah, and since he got more votes in Supporting Actor, LaKeith got put in Supporting Actor, even though that thus leaves that movie without a lead actor. <laughs> um, so nowadays, it goes to whichever one gets the more votes uh, will be the category you're put in. But uh, I'm guessing that rule was not put into place yet. Uh, what I think is impressive is Barry Fitzgerald still one Supporting Actor. Um, despite Presumably, having both split for him in actor and in supporting, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but that's an uh, interesting fact. Barry Fitzgerald is the only actor to ever have that happen. I'm curious if there's an actress. I'm sure it will come up if it does on these notes. But yeah, only time in history someone's been nominated twice for the same role in different act categories.
0: I imagine also, once that happens. I imagine once that happens. Once they vary quickly fix it
2: yeah i bet yeah i think so too i yeah kind of uh kind of i get yeah i totally get why it's like oh that we don't want that to happen uh very weird fact in history all right double indemnity
1: well there is one more thing about the ceremony that i saw um that will maybe kind of set the tone for oh yeah i
2: was saving that but we can talk about it now yes
1: (laughs) uh i mean we might as well right yeah 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 Um, so, (laughs) so Going My Way and Double Indemnity were released by the same studio and the studio kind of put all of their effort into campaigning for Going My Way. So when Billy Wilder went to the ceremony, he was like, he was like, I'm going to sweep like we're, I'm going to win all these awards. Um, and of course, you know, Leo McCary and Going My Way, um, you know, won award after award. Uh, so, when McCary won Best Picture, or Best Director, uh, Wilder uh, tripped him as he was... No, it's
2: a uh, picture. He, he was tripped on picture. He was tripped on picture.
1: So. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was, like, the breaking point was him winning director, and then winning one Best Picture, Wilder uh, tripped him. And <laughs> he said, Howdy Mr. Move. McCary stumbled perceptibly, or, yes, perceptibly, he gleefully recalled... Um, so then he started talking a lot of crap about the Academy Awards, uh, after the ceremony and I said, what? <laughs>
2: this <is pretty> great. <laughs>
1: what the hell does the Academy Award mean for God's sake? After all, Louise Rayner won two times Louise Rayner. Um, and if you don't know Louise Rayner, uh, I looked into her a little bit. She's kind of the originator of the Oscar curse. She won best actress two years in a row, and then her career quickly took a very, very swift downfall, which kind of made people question
2: why she won in the first place. Um,
1: so
2: yeah. there you go. Uh, and then before we actually talk about it, let's do one last thing, which is, this has not win any Academy Awards, but it has won several honors over the years, because this is considered one of the all-time greats. To preface, this is one. In 1998, AFI placed 38th greatest film of all time. 2001, it was ranked the 24th. Greatest thriller of all time by AFI. It was the 84th greatest in 2002 love story of all time. Phyllis <laughs> okay. Dreyfusen was voted the 8th um, best villain of all time. And then 2007, 10 years after the original vote of Greatest Films of All Time, uh, they put it at 29th on the second go around. Uh, and then in Time Out Magazine, it was rated 43th best film of all time. Entertainment Weekly gave it in 1999 the 50th greatest film of all time. In 2002, the National Society of Film Critics ranked it the 29th most essential film of all time. Uh, The Writers Guild put the screenplay as the 26th greatest screenplay of all time. And then finally, in 2015, the BBC said it it was the 35th greatest American film ever made. So, while that is preface, what did we think of Double Indemnity?
1: I mean, I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. I, uh... I think that there, I think it's a product of its time, which we'll talk about, but I think that it's kind of fascinating in that it's a thriller and a mystery and all this about insurance. I think that's a bit, a bit interesting. I mean, is it the worst movie we've watched? No. Is it the best movie we've watched? No. It's fine.
0: (laughs) Um, I liked it. I think uh, it definitely has some problems and it'll be interesting as we discuss it to parse through what well, of those problems come from just a lot of the stuff that happens in it becoming tropes that have been parodied so much um, and what of those are would have been problems at the time too. Um, I think... Yeah, I... I'd say it's on the better end of things we've watched, but that's because we've watched a lot of bad stuff. But I would say that it's not as strong as some of the stuff we've watched recently.
2: Well, I would say that it's not the worst film we've ever watched. It's not the best film we've ever watched. It could there will be the second best film we've ever watched after its wonderful life.
0: Yeah, it's. we're just going to have to stop saying this is the best film we've watched because none of us are going <laughs> to...
2: I think it's very potentially the second best film we've ever watched. I'm going to give it a 4.5 on Letterboxd. Uh, I personally have always been able to easily forget stuff like what Caleb is saying with uh, some of the derivative nature which come from the fact that I'm familiar with the tropes. I've always been able to like easily forgive that. I think the fact that the story about insurance is so interesting... Uh, I like the way the story unravels uh, and I think anything, I think that, this would be weird or weird way to put it. I think the Nor trappings are probably its biggest flaw. I think it's much more interesting just as a story of kind of in a way to me, even like a Coen Brothers-esque story of a man in over his head who quickly becomes one of the, what do you call it? One of the, I don't want to be like one of the thieves because that's kind of understanding what he does, but you know what I mean? becomes corrupted by the world he puts himself into. Um, I don't know. I enjoyed it. thought it was pretty good. Uh, spoilers, by the way. Follow. Uh, well, I know we don't usually do spoiler warnings on the podcast, but none of us had seen this movie before. And I do think it's worth checking out specifically for like how historically it is South and Billy Wilder's career, who, you know, is probably one of the most prolific directors
0: made of this Although, time. Although, I would say, as we transition into synopsisizing it, Spoilers don't really matter too much here because you know the outcome from the beginning of the film. That's
2: true. It's very yeah. um, Columbo. This because
0: <laughs> this film begins with, man, I've forgotten the character's name, Mr. Insurance. Neff.
1: Walter Neff. But
0: Walter Neff. call him Neff.
1: Which Stumbling I found into- out they were going to name him Walter Ness, but there was an insurance salesman living in L.A. named Walter Ness at the time. They didn't want to, they didn't want to like, they didn't want to like, they didn't want to get sued. So they, uh, that'd
0: be some bad advertising for Mr. (laughs) Ness. Um, but yeah, Walter stumbles into his office one night, goes to his memo machine. Clearly he's been kind of roughed up by something. Uh, and he begins to make a memo to one of his colleagues named keys and telling him that confessing to a murder. And then we get how that murder uh, came to be, and um, while cutting back to Walter narrating it, Um, and that's that's the movie. Goodbye.
1: Well, yes, Uh, that's the movie. That's the movie. Our
0: podcast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I didn't know how to get out of that.
1: (laughs) I yeah, it's it's definitely like a film noir trope. I would say both being, you know, in medias res and also, like, the narration throughout. Again, like, I'm familiar with Sam Marlowe, or or, or Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, both played by Humphrey Bogart. But um, I have a
2: question about those two movies, because I haven't seen Maltese Falcon in so long, and Casablanca, I've never seen. do They do in media res as well?
0: Casablanca does not. I'd also argue that um, what we consider as film noir probably wasn't totally formed by Casablanca yet. It just is very clearly on the path to it.
2: Because I was going to say the immediate rest stuff reminds me in a sense, uh, although obviously not to the extent of the jumping around that it does, of uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, and I was like, this seems interesting, the non-chronological order to me, just because of the time this came out and how unstandard that feels. Uh, I also want to say this movie came out exactly 51 years before I was born. Sorry, I just noticed that. On my birthday, I came on my birthday, when I was negative fifty-one, it's gonna be crazy when I turn fifty-one. I'm gonna be like, "Oh man, I'm as far as double indemnity is from when I I was born."
1: I'm sure that's what you'll so, remember.
0: Yeah. So, Sarah, being familiar with like the narr- the narration from f- other film noir movies, how did this one stack up?
1: It's been a little bit since I've seen Big Sleep, but um.
2: Oh, is big sleep. Does uh, that do immediate rest? No. Yes. Sorry. Shut up. I can't, I can't remember.
1: I can't remember. Um, it's. I mean, typically it is like, you know, it's like the character telling you the story. Whether they're telling another character, whether they're telling themselves. Like, it's always there's always that narration that's throughout because you need that. Like, it's it's hard to explain. I think that this movie does it okay. But it's like, you don't want to force feed the audience, but you also don't want to have these like gaps. And like, there does come into some like wordplay and things like that, where like a character will talk and then he'll answer in the present. Um, So I would say this is kind of more of a, more literal interpretation of it. Um, But again, it's been a little bit since I've seen, you know, the Humphrey Bogart one, so.
0: I like, I do like how this one helped Lay out like the procedural nature of the plan where he's like, I did this, and I did this, and it like it feels very systematic, but there are points where he's like, and then I went over and I looked at this person's dresser and they had two pictures on there, and like the camera is showing you the exact same thing, yeah, I like that it was like, ho, ho, ho. yeah, like the part it. when
1: he says like playing Chinese checkers, I thought that was like a euphemism, but like they're literally playing Chinese checkers <laughs> together. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess to start, we can kind of start going through. Um, so it's Walter Neff and he goes to, he sees that there's like a, a lapse in policy for this man, Diedrickson. And so he goes to his house, this like Spanish style house, which is famously, you know, still around in LA. And um, he meets uh, the guy's wife, Phyllis Diedrickson, And she's naked, which is like, ooh, naked woman. Um, I was going to say,
2: I felt like this movie, to me, one of the reasons it feels so crazy to me, it's really, I don't know, I don't think I've seen any of her movies around this time where, like, the characters are all pretty, like, it's going to sound bad that what triggered me to think about this was you mentioning that she was nude, Uh, but it's like, they're so apprehensible morally.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, cause they really, this is really just like, we're killing somebody and we're going to try to get away with it. Uh, and the comeuppance we get is really just like a standard comeuppance at the end. You get what I mean? Like, it's not like, mm-hmm. uh, it's not like, what's it? The letter where she, wouldn't she like get brutally murdered at the end of that after like she was already, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, I feel like the comeuppance here is much more standard than that one. That
0: yeah. It's more based around the relationship between Walter and keys, which is interesting because I feel like they have the most fleshed out relationship in the movie.
1: Um, I just want to circle back a little bit because um, it's interesting that you say that they didn't, that there wasn't like a huge comeuppance um, because at the time it was kind of considered to be very, controversial that they didn't have like a big comeuppance i mean spoiler alert they both presumably get shot and killed whatever or i guess maybe Neff doesn't
2: but i didn't think nef got killed yeah i think he probably very...
1: goes to the he probably he just, gets yeah. executed yeah. but um so when they purchased the rights for the original work i think it was i think it was a like a short story um the Hays code said that they they needed to have they couldn't show the body getting, you know, disposed of. They had to have a gas chamber scene. And she couldn't be wearing a towel. And obviously, of all of their demands, none of them were met. <laughs> um so and I, I like I think the reviews reflected this as well. I remember seeing um People, yeah, uh, the New York Times said uh, the two lead characters lack the attractiveness to render their fate of emotional consequence. Um, so take that as you will. But it seems like people were kind of like, why didn't they get punished for this?
0: Which is one of the interesting things about film noir as a genre. It's much more cynical than the films that came before. And part of that, I mean, things usually end badly for characters in film noir, but it's not all, it's usually more matter of fact.
2: Now, shall we talk about, should we continue with the plotline or should I mention something? I feel like it's pretty important to mention this movie. Mention away. If it's relevant, sure. Uh, Well, baby, it definitely is relevant, baby. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Baby (laughs) Uh, I I, I do think it's So there was a running joke of my uh, Other film friends with this movie Because they had a movie night with it last year and I missed it And afterwards everyone just started going Hey baby to everyone in our chat I was curious about it And then uh, Once Neff really gets to know Mrs. Dreiterson Because he pretty much only calls her Mrs. Dreiterson Or baby I don't think he ever calls her Phyllis. It's just baby (laughs) (laughs) Maybe
1: hey, <laughs> well, so like Fred McMurray at the time was he was always like the nice guy, he never played like any like morally reprehensible characters. Um, and he did the same thing later in the apartment where he played a man having an affair. Um, so like audiences were like, Whoa, like this is a nice guy, and he's playing like a jerk. And he like he personally had like a lot of reservations about it. Uh, I think he's probably like one of the weakest
2: actors in the movie. <laughs> he was the dad in the shaggy dog.
1: Yeah, see, like he's the family man. <laughs> and like it's funny too, leader. there's a big like a big continuity error is that he's wearing his wedding ring throughout the entire movie. <laughs> oh,
2: that's funny. I didn't notice
0: that. It's the uh it's the cat hand scandal <laughs> of its time. I um, I would agree. I do think he's one of the weaker elements. I think that um for me, the standout. For me, um, the standout here is the actor who plays Keys. I really like the, the character of Keys. He's, He's the uh, arbitrator, so he he reminded me of Stephen Root. Yes, he is kind of Stephen Rudish. Um, so his whole thing is that he is very good at sniffing out bad insurance claims, and he sees it kind of as like a righteous crusade against them, and he wants. Um, he wants Walter to like be his assistant, and Walter doesn't want to do this because um, that
2: scene is incredible. Uh, to me, I thought that was one of the funniest scenes in the movie. The closer the movie gets to being comedy, yeah, Uh, and I don't think it's intentionally supposed to be funny.
0: It's a $50 pay decrease, which. I I looked it up. That's seven hundred dollars. That's a pretty substantial amount of money. Like fifty dollars today is pretty substantial, but seven hundred back then. Um, and then he's
2: like, "You're lame for not wanting to take this decrease in pay." And it's like, I mean, anyone would take would be like, "No way" to a fifty dollar decrease in pay.
0: <laughs> but it's this really interesting, um, like juxtaposition where you have a character who is so such a blank slate and obviously throughout the plot like falls into corruption. And then you have this very self-righteous character, but for some reason, the self-righteous character really sees something in the blank slate. And I'm never quite sure if the movie shows me what keys sees. I think it's
2: just the 11 year relationship. Like we're told it. Yeah. We're not, we're not seeing it but I kind of get the idea that he's like no I trust this guy he's the one I've worked with for 11 years you know he works for me
1: I mean wouldn't the trust then come from him being a blank slate because I would argue that that's what Phyllis saw in him as well
0: oh that's a good point yeah like people can see they project on what they want to see onto him Yeah, which also plays into the plot to kill Phyllis's husband because he has to he has to pose as the husband so he even fills kind of that blank slate role in there I feel like
2: this is always worth talking about when it comes to movies like this is that I think there's always an interesting moment where for me I have to confront my own morality because you know these movies always like are like these are bad people to murder them but then they show the character in like that they're killing the most negative light possible Uh, and I'm like Maybe he does deserve to die. They're like, well, no, he doesn't. And this is me admitting to murder on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll uh, keep that the in jinx, mind. When the, when the jinx comes out, the jinx season two comes out in 10 years about me. This is the episode we're going back to look at.
0: Joe, uh, I this. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> We're going to need this for our evidence file. (laughs) By the end
1: of the episode, there's going to be sirens just like outside. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no.
0: (laughs) Oh, that would be the perfect parody of this is to do like a podcaster is talking to their editor of confessing to murder. (laughs)
2: Let's restart the episode and do it that way. (laughs) No, I'm kidding.
0: (laughs) Can we keep our gaslighting joke? (laughs)
2: What joke? There was no joke. Yeah, I don't know no what joke. you're talking like, about. We were
1: being serious. Yeah. This is very serious.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, so Phyllis is like not so subtly like, hey, what about if I got a, you know, a policy, an accident policy on my husband? And Walter's like, baby, did you think I was born yesterday? Do you take me for a fool? Um and she's like she's like you're rotten like she says that a lot <laughs> it's very film noir just the, the like the very like at the time i guess this was like revolutionary i don't know then it's very like i had wait until we get wait until we get to trial of the chicago seven the time <laughs> like the dialogue is very Wish snappy the, the dialogue is yeah. very like back and forth
2: Sarah, I want to just tell you right now that uh, if you think it's going to take us to Chicago, somewhere to get to Sorkin, you're sorely mistaken. He pops up oh, at no. least three times on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, it's been a good Hopefully run. Hopefully, being um, the went wins
0: something. So it's been a good run.
1: Uh, you I'm see Sarah. Cogs. Nice to see you. You
0: can see the cogs in Sarah's head <laughs> turning. It's like, how do I get out of this? <laughs> um,
1: so, yeah, he's like, whatever, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm, I'm not that kind of guy, whatever. And she's like, well, I'm not that kind of girl. Um, and then she finds him, and he goes, I'm crazy about you, baby. And they kiss.
0: Baby.
1: Uh, <laughs> and then they come up with a plan um, to do this. It's this accident policy on her husband who works in the oil field and to kill him and then to collect the double indemnity which is when like certain circumstances the insurance company will pay double again a thriller about insurance
0: (laughs) i mean just in terms of whether or not works about being insurance I, i think anything involving walter and insurance is kind of whatever but whenever keys gets to like yelling about It's like this amount of suicides and blah, blah, blah. And I've been in this for 20 years. Like I find his role really interesting in it. And I like the scene where their boss is trying to shake down the boss. I was going to say, that's a really
2: funny scene to me too. Uh,
0: But like, he clearly just doesn't have the knowledge of how insurance works, even though he is the boss.
1: I just wanted to, I just want to cut in real quick regarding uh, keys, because I think it's actually really interesting. Um, So keys was played by edward g robinson who at the time was he had he was a big star um but this was kind of his transitional period um he was third build which he wasn't crazy about but he was also paid the same amount as fred McMurray. Mm. and i think it's interesting the whole thing with the you know the best actor and best supporting actor thing because i think that that's likely what happened with edward g robinson i think that the vote was split, so as a result, he didn't end up getting any sort of nomination, and that's kind of like well, the, he
2: glares at Barry Fitzgerald. I Just think that that's nomination. kind of the uh,
1: that's kind of like the accepted you know lore quote unquote surrounding him in this movie is that the vote was probably
2: split. Hmm. Uh, what I wanted to say also about this movie kind of reminds me of um, I always mentioned Steven Soderbergh as the best example for this modern day, but most heist movies are like this. I like. The portion of this movie where they murder the guy because it really does just feel like experts doing their job and you're watching it and you're like, ooh, this is not... like It's a procedural type of filmmaking that I always really enjoy. It's like, oh yeah, they're not going to mess up here. So it's just kind of interesting seeing the machinations of the plot play out the way...
0: It's like an episode it, of Dragnet. I have seen that, so sure.
2: <laughs> I don't know what that is. Is it like Boba Fett?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's the book of Boba Fett.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the, Bob, the Bob Show. <laughs>
0: It's a it's an old cop show, but like, it it was kind of known for being very procedural and very it thrives on being boring. Like it is so matter of fact that it should be boring, but it's still interesting.
2: So let's talk I was, about. I was comparing it to the oceans movies, so the opposite. <laughs> but maybe I don't. know. I haven't seen Dragnet.
0: Well, um, yeah. At least with oceans movies, you have a visual flair, flair that yeah. Soderbergh brings. It's true.
1: So let's talk about their plan. Um, so first, they they can't be seen together at all. Um, but they so they meet at the grocery store. And it's, <laughs> this is such a this kind of sums up the whole movie to me is he says that she goes there every day and he goes whenever he feels like it. So she goes she like she's waiting for him every day. And he's just like, whatever, I'll show up when I want to, which is just classic Walter. <laughs> Um, so they come up with a plan, and there's kind of a... a sh- so the plan is that he's going to die on the train. Uh, quote, on the train, unquote. Um, so that they can I saw collect... Her. I saw her on the train. <laughs> so they can collect the <laughs> double indemnity. However, uh, a wrench is kind of thrown in the plan because the day that he is going to travel, um, Dieterson decides that he's not going to because he broke his leg. Um, so they have to, like kind of pressure him into it um so ultimately he does decide to go uh she calls him during that scene where uh keys is trying to get him to be promoted again quote unquote and um so the plan is to go and first step is that uh Neff has to hide in their car um yeah does anyone else want to take over (laughs)
0: No. Okay. <laughs> no, there, there are a bunch of steps he has to take to make people think he is in his apartment.
1: Oh yeah, he does this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but
0: he... then he gets in the car. She takes the wrong road, and he hops up and strangles the husband from the And He the breaks back his neck. Yeah. Pretty intense. We don't um, see any of it because this is a G-rated film.
2: Yes. I am kidding. it's not rated, it's
0: just gone. <laughs> he dresses up like him and goes on the train. And then
1: with an his He broke his leg, so he has a cast and he has crutches.
0: Mm-hmm. And then he goes to the the caboose and there's this guy there. He's like, oh no, I forgot my my cigars. And so the the witness. Yeah, Witnesses The act. witness offers to go back And get his scars for him While the witness is gone He he yeets off the train
1: <laughs> Yes And then they plant the body um, They go They get into the car, the car doesn't start Which is like the only, I guess the guy being in the back Is also kind of a, a moment Of like, oh no um, But the car doesn't start, they get the car going And then Um they're they're done i mean they the plan went through
0: yeah the two big problems are that the husband broke his leg which would complicate things with the accident insurance because keys that's that's what tips keys off later is he's like why didn't he file a claim for breaking his leg and then the guy eventually is brought as a witness although not a very helpful one
2: yeah well the witness he's helpful He's, he he, says, he, he did, says he didn't
1: see Diedrichson
2: is the big yeah, thing. He's just, he just cannot tell while looking directly at Neff that he saw Neff and hearing yeah. Neff's voice. Um, but he helps to a degree. And then he goes to like get his osteopath, which helps him out, too. I like that character. It's a fun little side character. It adds little characters in the story. Character, character, character. Um, you know, we forgot to talk about a character who's pretty important to the story earlier. The daughter. So. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I did want to talk about her.
2: She's great great performance. I agree. Oh, yeah, okay.
1: I'll well, the daughter is the out. big, <laughs> the, <laughs> daughter, the daughter is important because the daughter kind of tips the scales in Neff's mind of how, of how much he can trust Phyllis. Uh, because the daughter said the daughter is Diederson's, uh first wife's daughter and Lola is her name. And she tells Diedrichson, or she tells Neff that Phyllis was her mom's nurse and her mom died of pneumonia because she was really sick and when she when phyllis was taking care of her like all the blankets were off the bed and she says like before her dad died she saw phyllis like putting on uh you know a hat and veil in the mirror which is creepy um and lola also has a boyfriend who's kind of shady who ends up being someone that Neff wants to take the fall for, you know, as being Phyllis's accomplice.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm sorry if I seem a little uh, disengaged, but to me,
1: it,
2: yes, all that. <laughs> I don't know. Like to me, this is. I hate to be. This is me taking a step back and probably sound like a jerk to our listeners. But I don't know if this is a movie I can really talk about scene by scene. You know what I mean? It kind of is just the whole of it all in the vibe. Maybe maybe I'm crazy. Maybe maybe you guys could just. Fire me. What's in,
0: what, well, what's in the atmosphere? Like, you said the vibe. So, like, what atmospheric elements, like, appealed to you?
2: Like, I think the cinematography is nice. I think of the scene particularly, which we haven't got to. I'm sorry. I said, let's talk about Lola. And then I immediately was like, actually, I don't want to talk about Lola. I'm terrible. I'm a terrible host. Um, but I think, like, the moment where, like, Keys comes to his apartment and he just called uh, what's-her-face up there, uh, Phyllis up there. And they have the game with the door, which feels like now it's like, oh, this is cliche, but back then I'm like, oh, I haven't seen this in a movie from nineteen forties or thirties yet, in like this dramatic thriller setting. Stuff like that. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm talking crazy. Yeah. Maybe maybe you can just again throw me out. Sorry, you have my
0: permission to kill me. I can't I can't kill you until I have my insurance policy put out. So <laughs> Died while I'm doing a podcast. Double and triple indemnity. Pretty unlikely. Podcast indemnity. Um, Lola, I think Lola's part is really saved by the actress. Not that I think she's the best performance in here, uh, by, by any stretch, but I feel like it's kind of a nothing role that's mainly there to serve as like a piece of the plot. But I feel like, I feel like the act- actress takes advantage of her two or three scenes to really, um, ingratiate the viewer to her. I was worried
2: they were going to do something for her enough. I didn't want them to get in, like, a relationship-relationship. Yeah. Uh, They didn't. They didn't. I just felt like it was going there, potentially, at one point. I was like, please don't. And then they didn't. So I was like, oh, relief, you know?
0: She's also one of the only moral, like, just plain morally good characters in the film.
2: Yeah. it's fun because initially she is, as I said, initially... I kind of mentioned this with her husband... Uh, the husband is only ever framed negatively. I feel like Lola is intentionally framed to be negative. And then you get the scene with a driving her to her date. And it's like, oh, no, she's just normal. And mom's jealous of her because she's from the original marriage type of thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's very much a perspective thing. Because initially you're just given what Phyllis says about her. And you kind of expect her to be kind of a spoiled brat. I feel like, you know, but I don't know.
0: Which does call into question how much Phyllis is being truthful with anything, she says. There is that line where she talks about how her husband hits her. Her husband's definitely a jerk, but by the end of the movie, I'm really wondering if she just said that to kind of get Neff on her side.
2: I think, Sarah, this could lead into a discussion of what you wanted to talk about before we recorded. Uh, You mentioned to me that you had some issues with... um, the female roles in this film. Um. Uh,
1: I mean, yeah, but I think it's more of like, I think we all were kind of like, I don't know if I would call this a romance. And I think that it's, I think it's interesting that AFI or whatever called it such a great romance when I think it's kind of obvious to me, at least from the beginning that, they're playing each other or at least at least phyllis is playing Neff. i was Nef gonna is... say
2: yeah i agree with phyllis playing i think what's just kind of a mark yeah uh, like Nef it's pretty kind of obvious
1: to me it's pretty obvious that she's playing him the whole time she says she's pretty fast and loose with saying i love you um it just it's kind of it's interesting because it seems like neph doesn't necessarily I think because the romance is so like underdone, it doesn't seem like he has much of a motive besides just, you know, pretty woman. But even then it's like they don't really discuss like, oh, we're gonna get married. We're gonna run away together. They don't even talk about like what they're gonna do with the money, which I think is maybe intentional. It's maybe to show that they don't have that, you know, foresight or they never really were there for each other. I would
2: say that number eight of the greatest romances of all time is it's a wonderful life. And that's an okay pick. We'll allow that. Sorry, I, I was looking at
0: it. <laughs> is that higher or lower than double indemnity? That's higher. It's, okay, that's
2: good. That's eight. <laughs> double indemnity is at eighty four. <laughs> okay, okay.
0: Yeah, you listed it's, off a lot of lists. I couldn't keep up with what was weird. Yeah.
2: The only one we've seen is uh, "It's Wonderful Life." That's on this list. It looks like, besides
0: this one, I guess you know. <laughs> um, the femme fatale role, which we've kind of had with our two Betty Davis movies that we've watched, is actually one of the kind of key parts about um, about film noir. And uh, in a large part, it was a reflection of kind of the changing gender roles with women having more and more of a place in the workplace. And then especially once World War II had ended, how that was a conflict with men coming back and expecting to get their jobs back um, and you know getting their jobs back at the cost of um, the women who had been working them so it's interesting to see i feel like i feel like this has a pretty good idea of how to do a femme fatale cal- character but it doesn't for a femme fatale character to work i think you need the opposing force and nef is just not enough of a personality to keep up with phyllis
2: yeah as a romance i would definitely say the film kind of fails but i also say uh, I don't think it's trying to be great. I don't know why it's being pastly codified as that,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's because it, like a lot of people point this to as one of the first film noirs. And so I mm-hmm. think it's it has its level of influence, even if it's not necessarily a level of quality. It's the It's the boyfriend of Lola. And her father doesn't like him. So she's seen Nino is the name. Nino a
2: I just looked it up. Yeah.
0: And so it's kind of perfect. Uh, he's kind of the perfect fall because he doesn't like uh, the father and the father doesn't like him. So, and he is the only other male character in the movie besides keys. So it kind of makes sense to peg him for the murder.
2: Yeah. And again, I feel like it's kind of set up to be like a, Again, I was like, are we actually going this way where they're having romances with people way too young for them? Because as we've had on this podcast before, that happens on a lot of these movies. Uh, And I was pretty relieved that they were like both, those are both red herrings. You know?
0: But the film ends with um, Nefcom just being like, okay, I don't trust Phyllis anymore. I'm tired of this. I just like, um, Keys is getting closer to finding out the truth. I'm going to frame both of them and I'm going to try to get out. He goes and he confronts Phyllis who also is being like, I'm tired of this. I'm going to get rid of Neff before he, you know, pulls some stuff on me.
1: Um. Yeah. So, so Neff and Phyllis, they go to meet. Um, she ends up shooting him in the shoulder and um i guess maybe this is where the romance comes in um he's like why don't you try again baby and she's like she's like i never cared for you until just a minute ago when i couldn't make that second shot um which whatever and um
2: i think she was out of bullets
1: doesn't he use her gun on her
2: well, I could have my conspiracy theory. He You're shoots, her, right. he shoots her twice.
1: Right. <laughs> he shoots her twice, and I find it very interesting that she dies instantly. I don't know where he shot her that would allow that, but she dies instantly. Um, yeah, and then he runs into Zaketty. He's like, go talk to Lola.
2: She's waiting for your apartment. She still loves you.
1: And then he arrives at where we were at the beginning of the movie. Um, There's kind of a cool transition where he's talking and he looks over his shoulder and we then see what he's looking at, which is keys. Um, And that's the end of that kind of narration.
2: What I think is weird about the ending is after all this confession, he goes, can't you give me four hours to run to Mexico? And I thought this was so weird because I thought the whole point of the confession was to like actually like, atone for it but then he's like no my actual plan this entire time was to run away yeah i think
0: it's i think it's him trying to get one up on keys because at the beginning he's like you think you're so smart but you were wrong about this um
1: which keys wasn't really wrong he's like, like, knew exactly what the whole thing was yeah he just didn't I would know who did it
2: that like i kind of get that caleb but i also don't get that vibe but i I think it would be because of the performance, not because of the writing, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't that think, does make uh, sense. I don't think McMurray's performance uh, portrays that at all, um, but I would say maybe a different actor could give me that. Um, I never got that he was really that offended, other than, of course, the being yelled at for like, Why don't you take a $50 pay cut?
0: <laughs> you loser? I
1: mean, I don't think want it was... To- real- <laughs> I don't think it was necessarily him trying to one-up. I think that he truly respected him and he wanted him to know what happened. But it's also like a verbal confession of everything that he did, so I don't really know why he thought to do that.
0: And it could also be to help clear Zakedi because he's clearly had a um, change of heart with him. But what I like in this scene with the ending is there's been this... Uh, montage or not montage, this motif throughout where he lights us, he lights a match for um, Keys every time Keys is getting ready to smoke a cigarette. But the that changes throughout the film depending on how tense their relationship is or how friendly their relationship is. This ends with uh, Neff is bleeding out. Um, he tried to run for the elevator, but he can't make it. He pulls out a cigarette to smoke. And then um, Keys lights the match in the same way for him. And so it's this, I like this kind of motif of their relationship being carried throughout as kind of having, Keys representing having a strict morality and Neff representing not having like morality or at least being very morally neutral. Um, and that even at the end, Keys still has a certain amount of fondness or just recognition of everything that Walter has gone through so I really like this movie but it's a movie that like unlike
2: the crowd where like I liked it to the point where I could passionately defend it everything about this movie I just kind of like Does that make sense like I think it is a I, and I know we hate using the word objectively in this way but like I think it is a well-made film And I find it very fascinating how it exists at the time. But yes, in the term of me defending it for today and like trying to find like good stuff out of it today, it is just a genre piece. It's not like the crowd where I found it like very profound for 1928. This is just like a, oh, I can't believe they got away with it for 1944, more of a thing, you know? And I think that's a very key difference in terms of my passion for it. And that's my justification for not really saying much about it, you know?
0: Yeah, it's very good for the time.
2: Yeah, and I well, I do feel think it's good. I just think the impressive nature of it is that the story came out and did well at the time it did. Like, yeah, I don't know. I do have one more fun story about it if you guys are done talking about the plot. I don't know, if, Sarah, if you have anything you want to say. I'm good. Okay, well, I do think it's there's one fun thing, fact about the marketing for this movie that's on the there's there's a ton of stories on wikipedia about the production of this movie i didn't look at any of that because it's so long um but since this came out the same time since you went away uh selznick had a bunch of ads you know david o selznick had a bunch of ads in the trades that said it was the finest picture ever made and the big tagline was for since you've been away it was like the most important words uttered in motion picture history since gone with the wind so Billy Wilder responded by putting out an ad in the trade saying, double indemnity, the two most important words uttered in motion picture history since Broken Blossoms. <laughs> just immediately just lifting that tagline and putting it on his movie for a different iconic film. Billy Wilder seems like a cool guy. Hopefully he isn't cancelled. Uh,
1: well, there was actually a lot of tension between him and, and uh, what's his name? Salznick Chandler. Raymond Chandler, um, Mm. because this was the first screenplay that Chandler ever wrote um, because he was a novelist and he didn't really know how Hollywood worked. Like he thought that he was going to get paid like 150 bucks a week and he he ended up getting 750 a week. um, And he was like, it was very weird because he was on set every day, um, which was weird for a writer. He just didn't like how... Wilder wrote the movie he didn't he wanted it to be very true to the novel or the novella um, and Wilder wanted to do his kind of signature you know quick-witted sort of thing so they didn't get along at all Um, I mean they 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 really had a hard time working with each other but you know obviously it worked out because it's considered a classic now but um, it kind of deterred Chandler away from Hollywood for a bit.
0: Since we ended last week's uh, episode by talking about our experiences um, with Wilder, I wonder because this was this is kind of exactly what I expected from hearing about Wilder films, but never having seen one. Um, and you know, it does make me want to watch some uh, some more. But what did uh, how did this stack up to the ones y'all had seen before?
2: I haven't seen a Wilder movie in five years, so it's hard for me to even consider ranking them because I'm a very, um, I don't want to be like, I'm a very different person. I think probably this is the weakest of three I've seen. Um, The other two being some like It Hot and Ace in the Hole. Um, But I also would say all three of them are different genres, even though I I guess Ace in the Hole is closer to this. I think Ace in the Hole is a better film than this, but yeah.
1: Um, I had forgotten when we talked about it last that I actually have seen two Wilder movies. Um, I've also seen Sunset Boulevard. And I think Sunset Boulevard is a lot more similar to this one. Um
2: Yeah, it's the next one after this, I believe.
1: Uh, Am
2: I wrong? No. Am I totally wrong? Next
1: the next year he won he like he he got four for his next film, but I don't remember what the next one. Oh,
2: it's was. the last weekend. You're right. I'm totally wrong. Uh, um, Sunset Boulevard is in front of six years. You're right.
1: Yeah. It's I mean he he's very much like I think Sunset Boulevard is kind of a better version of this, even if they're not totally simple. They're both, you know, thrillers or whatever. Um, and it is kind of, the, it's the same thing. It's the narration throughout. Um, he's definitely like a director who loves California and he loves LA.
2: I think it's interesting looking at his filmography that it looks like outside of this one, his four classics all came out like in pairs. Cause Sunset Boulevard was immediately followed by us in the whole And some like it hot. Actually, some like it hot's like in a group of three because it's surrounded by witness for the prosecution and the apartment. But then all these other ones are just
0: kind of like, well, also Seven Year Itch, right? That was that followed by anything else?
1: Did he do Seven Year Itch?
0: I'm pretty sure. It's followed by
2: Spirit of. It's before. It's preceded by Sabrina, which I know is considered to be great.
0: So
1: his last like a big awards movie was The Fortune Cookie. I would say that I would say that this movie probably was him starting to find his stride because the movies that I've seen after this were definitely better. Um, I've seen Sabrina as well. I forgot about that. <laughs> so, seen what? I've seen Sabrina as well. I forgot about that. Um, and I would say, hey, Sabrina yeah, I would say a
0: teenage, witch,
1: also great. Um, but yeah, I would say those three that, afterwards are better than this. And I think that this was kind of the start of, um, I would say this is kind of the start of his career kind of taking off and him really finding his stride as both a writer and a director.
0: Right. Nom- nomination time.
1: Yes. Nominations. Nominations. Yes. It was nominated for best picture, best director for Billy Wilder. Best Actress for Barbara Stanwyck, who we did not talk about at all. <laughs> best Adapted Screenplay for Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. Best cinematography, Black and White. Best Music, Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Feature. And Best Sound Recording.
2: Um, I kind of mentioned this earlier. Uh, I think, well, there's a lot of good aspects here. Because as I said, I like the movie. But I'm going to go with Best Score. I thought the score was excellent in uh, causing great atmosphere for this. I it, I heard it throughout, which I feel like for a lot of these movies, they just kind of come in at random points. I think the score is a pretty constant presence here, and it always adds to the film. So, score.
1: Yeah, I also say score. I think that it has a it has a, like I could. This score is distinct, unlike the other movies that we watched that have you know that have been nominated for score. I think this one is pretty iconic.
0: Interesting. The score and the narration were the two things that I kind of struggled with, just because I've seen so many parodies of both of those uh, type things. Um, I think I'll go. It, it seems kind of like the basic pick, but I'm gonna go cinematography. Obviously, that's one of the most distinctive elements of a film noir. But I really, I really did like uh, what uh, what John Seitz did with this film, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say that. I was
2: tempted to give it to Billy. Yeah you said it right I think. I was tempted to give it to Billy for director. But I also think it's more funny for him the
0: trip, uh my so I don't want to mess with that. So it's weird. That's one of those things that's funny in the past, but if that happened like this year at the Oscars. Maybe can I, well, I, I was gonna
2: say I feel like though we have had people be sassy about the Oscars recently. Most recently being after the 2018 Oscars where someone asked Spike Lee what he thought of Green Book winning and he just went like Not my cup Ah! of tea (laughs) Yeah, not my cup of tea (laughs) Well, he also uh,
1: stormed out and we also got that amazing gif of uh, Chadwick Boseman being like, what
2: the hell? (laughs) Chadwick and the side
0: eye Okay, I did just think if Jane Campion did trip Lin-Manuel Miranda that'd be hilarious (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> Le- man, oh, what well, LeMaine Miranda, Swift, Billie Eilish, I'd be okay with that.
1: <laughs> we have to add a nomination.
0: <laughs> um, oh, this is easy. I need to look up his name. Um, Robinson. Is the cast? Yes, um, yeah, uh, Edward G. Robinson. Uh, I really liked his performance as Keys. It kind of sold the whole film for me. Um, and I would, I, I'm kind of surprised he wasn't nominated for supporting Um, as unfortunate as it might've been for him to start transitioning into supporting roles. He, he did this one. Well, Sarah, what about you?
1: Um, I'm going to give mine to Jean Heather who played Lola um, because I thought she did really well, especially during her like confession scene, talking about uh, how evil her stepmother is
2: yeah uh so uh i had as i always do i had mine and a backup and you guys picked both my first choice in my backup so i will also go with edward g robinson for supporting actor uh because he's the one who i ultimately wanted more of uh like you know what i mean i'll totally feel like it's more of a snub now but i think both of these choices are excellent surprise i think they're both better than stanwick honestly in this movie uh i get why stanwick is the big like draw in terms of like oh the acting. Uh but I gotta go with Edward G. Robinson, supporting actor, too. Um
0: all did right. do you guys know off the top of your head if Jean Heather went on to do bigger things? She from this?
1: well, well I can tell you, I can tell you. So this movie and going my way, uh which of course came out the same year, were kind of her debut. Um she got into an a uh, car accident a few years later um ended up getting a lot of cuts on her face and then unfortunately had to retire because the face is the money so that was kind of her her career which was pretty short unfortunately
0: yeah that's because you do you can see in this um that she has a lot more skill than is required in this movie mm-hmm. and so with a with a starring role she probably have left a really good impression
2: she's in a was she in anything else that was big doesn't look like it
1: i don't uh, think so yeah. i think she was pretty she was a dancer so she did a lot of like you know like ensemble roles and stuff like that uh, but nothing too i mean this and going my way were kind of her you know her two big roles in one year so
2: next week i know you guys want to know what movie we're covered next time but more importantly the next well not more importantly but importantly next time uh by the time this episode is out the oscar noms will have been announced however at the time of this oscar, this recording the oscar noms have not been announced uh so at our next time we're going to try to look at the current oscar noms and see what we think we will cover in 2026 uh on this podcast we'll try to we'll put out our guess for what movie will be the snub club film this year but we will also be covering another movie uh, drum roll, please. Next week we'll be going to the 18th Academy Awards, and we'll be covering a song to remember. Woo, Sarah. Since I presume you have it opened up because of stuff that happened that Joe edited out, who is the director of a song to remember?
1: Um, a song to remember is directed by Charles Vidor, and it is a biography about Frederick Chopin.
2: Cool so we will see if it's worth remembering next time as we also cover the new Oscar ops.
1: Also, I don't mean to get ahead of myself, but according to Wikipedia, Anne Rand hated this movie, so we shall see hey.
2: why. <laughs> Who hated it? That's a
0: good Anne, sign.
1: Anne Rand.
0: <laughs> oh, great. Cool. <laughs> um, oh, All I'm right. so excited. We're going to piss off a bunch of libertarians.
2: <laughs> I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Blankments. You can also follow my other two podcasts, Wise with Ty and Dan, a Marvel podcast where we talk about, right now, Men in Black and a variety of other things. Who knows? And then you can also follow uh, my other podcast, Stuff Club. Sorry, I am saying the the thing I said in the last
0: podcast I was on. Follow me on Blankments on Letterboxd if you want my reviews. I am Caleb. You can follow me at The Myth King on Letterboxd. Um, and you can follow me on at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube, where you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, All New Fifty Two, and Star Wars Therapy. And a special thanks to our editor Joe Schrimmer. Thank you, Joe. Thank you,
1: Joe. Thanks, Joe. Um, and I'm Sarah Kanoff. You can find me on Letterbox just my name, Sarah Kanoff. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter um, at sgk. 29 e s s g e k y 29 um you can find us uh on facebook snub club uh twitter snub club pod and instagram snub club podcast
2: all right um we'll see you all next time with a song to remember and enjoy those oscar knobs that came out last week yeah goodbye baby bye baby bye baby (laughs)